You're listening to the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your host today, Catherine Putz, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And this is Ankit Panda, your co-host also in Washington. How are you doing, Ankit? Good, Katie. How are you? Doing all right. Well, you know, this wouldn't be the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics podcast without the occasional North Korea episode. Uh, so this is that's what that's what you're getting today, listeners. Um, you know, as we sort of settle into 2024, uh, North Korea has again been in the headlines, particularly with Kim Jong Un making some rather belligerent remarks over the past month. Uh, for example, in late December. During the plenary session of the Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea, Kim appeared to kind of shift perspective on the relationship between North and South Korea. He described relations as being between two belligerent states. And then about two weeks later, during a visit to a munitions factory, he described the Republic of Korea, South Korea, as the, quote, principal enemy and stated that he had, quote, no intention of avoiding a war. Lucky for us, Ankit is precisely the right person to ask to help in parsing what these sort of rhetorical shifts really mean in the context of the sort of ever-evolving geopolitical uh, cauldron that is Northeast Asia. Um, Ankit, you know, aside from the, that very brief overview, what did Kim say in the last month that has really drawn so much attention? Yeah, so I think you hit it on the head here, uh, which is the big, the big topic uh, among Korea watchers is... What does North Korea's apparent abandonment of the longstanding objective of Korean unification portend uh, for the Korean Peninsula? Right, this is a pretty significant change. Um, it sounds pretty innocuous, I think, to a lot of people. Right, the idea of Kim Jong Un describing North and South Korea as two hostile uh, or countries in a hostile relationship, because that's intuitively how I think a lot of people think about the Korean Peninsula, two uh, you know two different countries. But until Kim made this statement, uh, and you know this remains true for South Korea, both Koreas constitutionally lay claim to the entirety of the Korean Peninsula's territory, right? This was a—the Korean War ended in an armistice in 1953. That armistice did not uh, fundamentally resolve the political question behind the Korean War, uh, which very much remains unfinished. And now North Korea has apparently decided to set aside the objective of unification, uh, with Kim Jong-un acknowledging that the two Koreas should be seen as two states uh, instead of one people, uh, so to speak. So there's a lot going on here, right? Because this, uh, for the purposes of North Korean propaganda, this is sort of setting aside the pan-Korean nationalism that had animated uh, North Korea's and South Korea's uh, approach to unification. Now, South Korea hasn't reciprocated this, right? So South Korea continues to treat unification as an imperative um, North Korea is trying to make this more credible. So uh, the advantage of taping this podcast on January 22nd is that we've had a few weeks to kind of observe what this has meant in practice. So just a couple observations here. Uh, Kim uh, will dismantle monuments uh, to unification in North Korea. The North Koreans have uh, shut down a bunch of their overseas Korean propaganda websites, uh, kind of mm -hmm. touting unification and North Korean propaganda to Korean audiences. So this, I think, does represent uh, the most meaningful policy shift uh, in North Korea since Kim Jong-un took power, right? So pretty pretty significant overall. Uh, none of the nuclear weapons stuff was new because North Korea was pursuing nuclear weapons before Kim Jong-un arrived. He simply accelerated that process and crossed some important thresholds. But this moving away from unification uh, is, is a meaningfully important shift, I think. I, you know, I think that's a really great observation in terms of how well, the first thing that you mentioned, sort of how the international community sort of views the two Koreas as two 
separate Koreas. Uh, but that's that is, you know, in the the grand scope of uh, global history, a pretty short period of time. Uh, and something that I, I noticed when I was in South Korea last year, um, how sort of many Koreans, particularly older Koreans, would would describe, you know, all Korean people as being Koreans. There's no North Koreans, there's no South Koreans, there's just Koreans. Um, and this seems to sort of be a different way of, of, of approaching that and, and that will be interesting to watch. How was how was sort of Kim's um, statements uh, processed in, in the South Korean sort of psyche in the South Korean media? You know, what what was the government's reaction to these statements? And then has that been reflected sort of in any kinds of um, evidence of, of, of public interest in it? Yeah. So, you know, I haven't been to South Korea since this was decided, obviously, by North Korea. But um, the reaction largely seems to be one of surprise and shock, I think, in a lot of South Korea. This is, you know, North Korea doesn't make these kinds of drastic policy shifts. It is a country mm -hmm. that is known largely for continuity, uh, ideological, strategic. Um, but this is an important shift. There have been some indicators. Uh, last year, for instance, uh, a couple times North Korea used the phrase Republic of Korea to refer to South Korea in its own propaganda. Uh, and there was a debate that what were they doing this in a sarcastic way to poke fun at South mm. Korea? Because tr traditionally they call South Korea sort of the puppet forces or the puppet regime of the United States, uh, kind of denying them that status of statehood. But using that phrase Republic of Korea, I think, got some people's attention. Um, you know, Katie, you sort of got me thinking that one observation also to be made here is about... I mean, the idea of revisionism on the Korean Peninsula more generally, right? Because mm -hmm. um, let's face it, I mean, more than, uh, you know, more than 70 years now since the end of the Korean War, the idea of Korean unification, if you're sitting in Pyongyang under a liberal democratic South Korea, or if you're sitting in Seoul under a Marxist-Leninist North Korea, for both Koreas, that is a revisionist threat to be avoided, right? The, both mm -hmm. Koreas, of course, talk about unification, peaceful unification under some kind of arrangement. But the reality is, if, if you again look at demographic trends in South Korea, you know, you talked about how the older generation, many of whom, some of whom are born in North Korea, many of whom have family in North Korea, um, view unification as a emotive, non-negotiable strategic mm -hmm. imperative. But that is starting to shift. And now, you know, it's interesting to me because Kim Jong-un is a, is a young leader. He's a millennial. Uh, for him, I don't think unification necessarily has potentially the same salience that it did for his father and his grandfather. Uh, mm -hmm. But also, it's interesting to see this decision come after North Korea has sealed in its status as a nuclear power in its own right. All right? The idea of forcible regime change in North Korea is no longer really on the table, uh, well, in, in some fringe circles perhaps, but it's not a serious policy option. Uh, and so in a way, by forswearing unification as this revisionist objective, uh, Kim might be indicating that he is con content to have North Korea survive in the form that it exists in today to sustain his regime for years and decades to come. He's he's started to introduce his daughter in public, right, indicating potentially that there is some succession logic at work here as well. Should note here for listeners that South Korea's National Intelligence Service does think that Kim Jong-un's daughter uh, is the most likely successor candidate now, given how long she's been out there in public. So just a, you know, just a few thoughts there on revisionism. But I, but I should say here, Katie, you, know, you alluded to this in the intro, Kim has been belligerent. And so despite the fact that he's renounced unification, uh, some of the language that he has used suggests that North Korea still has ambitions in a conflict to potentially annex South Korean territory, which I think continues to raise the specter of an inter-Korean clash or conflict uh, as we continue into 2024. 
yeah, no, I, I think there's sort of, you can sort of look at this in, in two different ways and we won't really know until <laughs> events unfold, whether this is, you know, a, a definition of North Korea as what it is uh, and South Korea is what it is. And there isn't a future of the two of them together from that North Korean perspective. Um, how was, how was this sort of, taken more broadly, you know, if we fit the sort of these rhetorical shifts into sort of the United States's diplomacy or lack thereof with North Korea, uh, China's relations with Korea, Russia's relations with Korea, is there sort of what is that larger geopolitical context, um, particularly as the United States sort of heads into a, what will probably be a pretty crazy election year? Um, I, th I think there's we, I, I don't know what will happen when it comes to the United States and North Korea, and I don't think anybody does, but I'm curious to hear your sort of take on how, how that might fit into uh, the rest of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I have a hypothesis that, um, and this is something that I've been thinking about for a while. I mean, I think there was evidence as early as late 2019, right, long time ago, before the COVID-19 pandemic, <laughs> that North Korea was fundamentally uh at the start of a broader strategic recalibration. You know, you might remember this was when Kim Jong-un rode that white horse up to Mount Pektu and indicated that he was kind of contemplating fundamental questions about North Korea's strategic direction. He spoke later that year at the fifth plenum of the Seventh Central Committee in December 2019 about, uh, you know, a little bit of a cryptic reference to a new way for North Korea. And mm. I think in the last... 12 to 18 months, we've started to see what that new way looks like in practice. And I think there's three components to it. Um, first one, of course, full throttle, um, pedal to the metal on nuclear and military modernization, uh, the least surprising component of all of this. Uh, the second one, I think, is um, doubling down on relations with China, but more importantly, tripling down on relations with Russia, uh, which we've covered in, in detail on a recent podcast, which listeners can go back and uh, listen to uh, for the really interesting ways in which North Korea and Russia have forged ahead amid Russia's war against Ukraine. Uh, there's a long list of quid pro quos for both countries to benefit from. Uh, and the third component appears to be this fundamental recalibration of inter-Korean policy uh, into um, abandoning the unification objective. Uh, I should also note here, you know, South Korea is about to have a national assembly election, and I think some of this is also designed to rock the boat in South Korean politics. Um, this has already been noted by several South Korean analysts. Um, the North Koreans, for instance, uh, well, in South Korea, the progressives have sort of blamed the Yoon administration, which is hawkish uh, towards North Korea, for kind of stoking this reaction from Pyongyang. Um, so that, too, I think, is at play here. But fundamentally, I think we've seen North Korea lay the groundwork for this broader strategic recalibration. Um, and Katie, you also asked about, you know, U.S.-North Korea diplomacy. Um, something I just want to state here is in a lot of discussions about how to get diplomacy started with North Korea, you, you hear the observation that has historical grounding, that in the past, North Korea would negotiate, the negotiations would inev inevitably fall apart or a deal would fall apart. They'd go back, they'd build up capability with the intention of coming back to the negotiating table after they had more leverage. Now, I think this explained what happened in 2017 and 2018 pretty well. But I do think there's ample evidence this time that things actually might be different, that the North Koreans might fundamentally have no interest in revisiting talks with the United States for a very long time, like potentially mm -hmm. more than five years from now, we still might be in a position where the North Koreans are not picking up the phone. They are not interested in meeting with any Americans while they continue to double and triple down on their relations with Russia and China. So I think it's a really interesting set of indicators here for just broader geopolitical flux on the Korean peninsula. But I think in the short term, the biggest concern I still have is the prospect of a 
crisis uh, kind of spiraling out of control between the two Koreas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think before uh, we wrap it up, uh, you know, my, my last question is, you know, as we sort of move through 2024, what is it that you're looking for uh, to sort of gauge uh, the direction of, of North Korean policy. You sort of laid out these these three areas uh, that you're watching, but are there specific sort of markers or anniversaries or sort of give us a little uh, what we should look for as the year goes on? Yeah, so let me, let me kind of pick up where I left off on this whole inter-Korean crisis possibility, right? The year began not only with this North Korean pronouncement on unification, but also uh, exchanges of artillery fire between the two Koreas, right? And I think mm -hmm. there's increasingly... I increasingly have the view that the North Koreans are testing thresholds uh, on the South Korean side. Uh, you know, President Yoon has appointed quite a few hawkish uh, individuals to his cabinet. The new South Korean defense minister, for instance, is a very prominent uh, hawk against North Korea, has called for uh, reacting uh, in vengeance. Uh, he threatened to mercilessly bury the North Koreans if there's any kind of attack against South Korea. Uh, a lot of the thinking of this administration in South Korea about how to deal with North Korea is also shaped by 2010, uh, right? So 2010 was the year when the North Koreans sank a South Korean warship and shelled a South <laughs> Korean island. Uh, and um, South Korea, despite being ready to have potentially gone to war that year, was uh, held back uh, by the United States. Uh, a former U.S. Defense Secretary, Robert Gates, talks about that episode in quite some detail uh, in his memoirs. But now, uh, you know, with these exchanges of artillery fire, the concern I have is that the North Koreans are actually going to attempt to continue pushing this, uh, potentially in the lead up to the National Assembly elections, uh, potentially in the lead up to the U.S. elections, by actually carrying out uh, strikes against South Korean armed forces or against an island mm -hmm. across the northern limit line. And the big concern, and we've sort of seen evidence of this with the Yoon administration, is that South Korea then reacts disproportionately. And this is not a theoretical concern, right? We've seen... Um, several incidents where the South Koreans have actually reacted in a disproportionate manner. So uh, just a couple examples, you know, in November 2022, when North Korea uh, launched was like 23 missiles in a single day, one of those missiles landed across the northern limit line, which was unprecedented. And in exchange, the South Koreans, um, Yoon ordered the South Korean Air Force to fire air-to-ground missiles. And the South Koreans launched three air-to-ground missiles across the northern limit line as sort of a disproportionate reaction. Uh, similarly, when uh, North Korea flew five drones into South Korean airspace in December 2022, um, Yoon uh, reacted by sending South Korean drones back. Uh, but according to at least one unnamed South Korean official who was quoted by Yonhap News Agency, Yoon apparently initially ordered uh, two to three times as many drones that North Korea sent to go back into uh, mm. North Korea from South Korea, right? So again, that sort of disproportionate logic. And then finally, just a couple of weeks ago in January 2024, with this initial uh, round of artillery fire where the North Koreans fired 200 rounds approximately, the South Koreans retaliated by firing 400 rounds. Uh, and so mm. that's this sort of disproportionality that's kind of... Uh, instinctual for the UN administration. It seems really baked into how this administration in South Korea thinks about deterrence vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. Uh, it could lead to a classic spiral situation where North Korea then is pressured to up the ante after a South Korean retaliation. So this is a concern, you know, for the United States as well. So um, presumably the U.S. would have an interest, like in 2010, in ensuring that South Korea doesn't react in this way. But, you know, I'll stop rambling in a second, Katie. But the last thing here is that the very different geopolitical context in 2024 between the U.S. and South Korea also bears mentioning, right? 
the alliance mm-hmm. went through a rough four years under Donald Trump. Uh, South Korea has an, an increasingly larger amount of the public interested in acquiring nuclear weapons because there's increasingly less trust in the United States. And so it's going to be more difficult, I think, for Washington to potentially restrain Seoul. So that, too, I think is something just uh, worth keeping uh, keeping at the forefront as we think about the Korean Peninsula going into 2024. All right. Uh, Always a very cheerful conversation when we're talking about the Korean Peninsula. Uh, Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, If you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in touch with Ankit or myself. We're always happy to uh, cater to your interests. Uh, And and I guess we'll just leave it there. Uh, Oh, I should not forget this part. Wherever you listen to your podcast, please leave us a, a nice, happy review. Recommend us to your friends. Uh, we enjoy uh, we enjoy making this podcast, so we'll keep doing that for you. And we'll be back uh, soon with more. Uh, have a great, I guess, rest of your January, Ankit. Thanks, Katie. You too.